Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is Baharak Youssefi. Baharak is the liaison librarian for history, international studies, liberal studies, and political science at Simon Fraser University. Baharak's research interests include feminist, community-led, and critical librarianship. She is co-editor with Shirley Liu of Feminists Among Us, Resistance and Advocacy in Library Leadership. Baharak is currently a PhD student in the Department of Geography at SFU, where she is interested in the study of libraries as sites of power, powerlessness, belonging, and exclusion. And we are really excited to talk to Baharak about feminist leadership, public scholarship, generational divides in librarianship, and many other things um, that we can hopefully fit in this interview. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add in introduction or anything else you want listeners to know about you before we get into our questions? That that I think that covers it. Thank you so much. I'm really, really happy to be with you here tonight. Thank you. Then do you want to tell us a bit about how you got into the field of librarianship or the specific, you know, some more specific field of your interests, how you decided to pursue that kind of work and what brought you to where you are? Yeah, for sure. So I was a bookseller for many years before going to library school, and I enjoyed doing that a lot. Um, it was about 2004. Um, I had a BA in psychology and an MA in women's studies and a huge student loan debt. And um, so I just like needed to figure out a line of work that would allow me to pay off my debt and also pay my living expenses. And unfortunately, I just kind of couldn't figure out a way to do that on bookstore wages. So I was trying to figure out what to do next. Then so I looked into going to library school at UBC. So librarianship wasn't a calling or anything for me. I just figured I would make a decent librarian and I could also make a decent living doing the work. So in terms of what I wanted to do in libraries, I didn't really have a a sense of what kind of a librarian I wanted to be. But I knew that I didn't want to move away from Vancouver and I didn't really want to work in like a corporate library setting. So those are kind of a couple of things that I, I did know. And so it was either um, kind of public librarianship or academic librarianship at that point. And I, I ended up doing both and I really enjoy both. My first continuing position was teen services librarian at uh, Vancouver Public Library. And then from there, I moved um, to a couple of um, temporary positions at uh, Simon Fraser and Capilano. And then I went back to SFU um, and I've been there since 2012 in a continuing position. So that's kind of how I got into this thing. <laughs> I'm curious about what you're working on for your PhD. Sure. So I am a, a PhD student just going into my third year um, at SFU in the Department of Geography. And I just finished uh, defending my exams and I've done my 
coursework. And yay! <laughs> just uh, just at the very beginning stages of working on my dissertation proposal. So take everything I'm about to say with that. I'm at the beginning stages of my dissertation proposal. Basically, with kind of the massive amount of reading that I ended up doing uh, for the exams and lots of support from my committee and my advisor and from other geographers at SFU, my focus has shifted in the last year or so, which I, I think is totally kind of to be expected. And what I'm thinking about at the moment is become really interested in one of the ways in which I perceive some library workers to be responding to essentially what I see as the profession's failure to grapple with the impacts of race, class, gender, and other differences in our society by creating libraries and communities that are outside of the traditional libraries or traditional library associations kind of structure. Both in Canada and the US, um, there's been quite a lot of debate about the mandate of libraries as inclusive spaces, but at the same time, all the kind of the racist and transphobic and classist incidents and policies that are also present in libraries, which I think have really exposed the long-standing problem and struggle. And in some ways, when you look at that, this struggle is really uh, a struggle over kind of belonging and over space and place. I've worked in libraries, um, as I mentioned, since 2007. And in this time, I would say I've really kind of devoted myself to um, kind of efforts to make change. And I think while lots of us librarians, library workers, scholars are working within these institutions um, and also within the academy, like in terms of LIS programs, to reform libraries, to make them better, places, there are also a group of folks that seem to also, I mean, they're they're probably doing that as well, but they seem to also be directing their energies elsewhere and to creating new communities and new spaces and kind of new services. I think you guys did a really great episode about grassroot libraries, and you featured a Joss Paper Library, I believe, and Queries. And out on the shelves, is that right? Yep. Yep. That's yeah. Right. And um, and Shannon Mattern, um, who's at the New School in New York, has written about what she terms fugitive libraries. And there, are, another example is uh, We Here, which is a kind of a supportive community that's created by Black, Indigenous, and racialized library and archives workers. To, uh, to offer this uh, kind of community and mutual support. So I'm just really interested in the work that these kind of communities and these um, library workers are doing. In terms of how all of that relates to geography, I would say there's a brilliant geographer named Ruthie Gilmore, who you, uh, you may know. She describes geography as kind of this study of why things happen where they happen. So I'm really interested in looking at how and why people are creating these spaces and these communities and what happens when they do create these. I'm curious about what motivates people to do it. And I'm curious about what motivates library workers to either 
symbolically or actually literally um, kind of refuse to engage with the traditional uh, library structures and associations. I, I think it's kind of especially interesting because libraries are, of course, as you know, have this kind of socio-spatial reputation and context as um, kind of palaces for the people. I'm using air quotes here. So yeah, I'm just really excited and inspired by the work that I'm seeing happening kind of all around us. And once I have a chance to actually write this up and defend the proposal, then I'll, I hope to reach out to folks that are doing this work and kind of learn more about it. And yeah, so that's the that's the PhD as it stands right now. That's amazing. We've had other people come on and talk about their theses. So, you know, one day if you want to. <laughs> Well, I'll be back now. I feel like everyone's I'll be back like, what in 2032. <laughs> That's fine. Whenever. I don't know if we'll still be podcasting. We'll see. But but I but I feel like everyone's gonna have heard this and be like, wow, so interesting. Yeah, and con- congratulations on finishing your uh, your exam. That's Thank great. You. I don't really understand how PhDs work, but it sounds like a big <laughs> milestone. So. In 2016, you wrote an article for Letters to a Young Librarian about um, how to be a good (laughs) library boss. Uh, What prompted you to write that letter? (laughs) That's a a good question. Like, why sit down and randomly write a thing about how to be a good boss? I guess I just have a lot of time for good bosses. Um, Honestly, that's the short answer. I think the structure that we currently have in libraries means that the sort of boss you have can make a huge difference in your life and in your well-being. And I think being a decent boss takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of self-work and introspection because in many ways you're working within structures that are inherently oppressive and unfair and they're set up to take people's agency away from them. So I think in order to be a good library boss, you must, you really have to actively challenge the system and advocate for the folks who are working for you. And so that was kind of my thinking when I was like, I'll write a thing about how to be a good library boss. I just think it's really, really important and makes a huge difference. So when you wrote it, had you been a library boss ever or were you writing it as someone like a underling? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been bold. That would have been a good move. No, I had I uh, started managing in libraries in 2012. So I had been a library boss for four years by at that point. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, I feel like, you know, people who've had a lot of bosses also have many thoughts on. Oh, 100%. Which I'm sure you do. Have better thoughts. So yes, no, for sure. <laughs> One of the pieces of advice in that article that really stuck out to me when I read it, and I don't know if it was the moment I was reading it or what, but you said, be absolutely committed to transparency. And I feel like it also resonated with me because we're in a profession that's all about access to information. We talk about it all the time, but it really gets hoarded a lot, I I find. Um And I'm curious, you know, when you revisit that list or you think back to it, are there items that really stick out to you that, you know, still you still feel so strongly about years later? (laughs) Um, 
I guess to be honest, it's it's just totally scary to sit down and read something that you wrote four years ago, even like four days ago. I find it kind of frightening to read, but um, but I did have a look at it again because we were having this conversation, and and I think that advice is still generally okay, and um, and I think the point that you bring up, transparency, is is pretty key. Just a few days ago, I. I was uh, participating in the scholars strike and Dr. Ronaldo Walcott in his teaching said, and I'm, I'll just quote here. I, I think he said something along the line of the logic of confidentiality replicates the violence that we're trying to undo. And I just, that really resonates with me. I think folks in power know that and folks in power in libraries try to tell you um, that to be transparent and to talk openly about stuff is unprofessional. And we just really need to resist that. I think um, I think that's something that I definitely um, came up against as a new librarian and, and do to this day, right? I mean, some might even say this conversation we're having is uh, quote unquote unprofessional. And so I think, I think transparency is, um, yeah, it's, it really is key. You talk about the need for libraries, quote, to be changing in big fundamental ways, end quote. Um, and then that, that change usually has to come from management. Um, so could you talk more about the changes that you think are needed? <laughs> sure. I think, okay, I think there's a long list of things that are right with libraries, and there's a long list of things that are wrong with libraries. But the things that I most struggle with um, is our kind of collective refusal to take responsibility or even in some cases acknowledge the harm that we've inflicted historically and that we continue to inflict today. And I think even in circles who acknowledge this or these issues, in my experience, even those folks have very little appetite or kind of political will um, for actual material change and a lot of interest, in fact, and a lot of investment in keeping things the same. So just as an example, this conversation that we're having currently about kind of racism, we talk about racism in terms of microaggressions and bias and all of that, which, of course, are like real things. But those are the products of racism. And racism is a system of power intentionally designed to benefit white people materially and otherwise. So a question we might ask is, so how can we be involved in libraries and all this kind of anti-racist work without actually having any intention to do anything about it? So like, how can that be? And I think there are structures in place that help people who are invested in current systems to achieve exactly that. So for example, we, every conversation, and I don't know if this has your, been your experience as well or not, but in my experience, every conversation we have about racism in libraries and in my context also in universities has become an opportunity for us all to pretend like it's the very first conversation we're having about racism in libraries. So this is an ongoing thing, right? So instead of making any kind of real progress 
or thinking deeply about kind of racial order and hierarchy and its relationship to power and its relationship to material gain, all of a sudden we're all sitting in a room basically and attending our like 17th unconscious bias training. And, and of course, all of this is intentional. I mean, it's meant to leave the current power structures intact and it's messed, meant to be just absolutely exhausting. And when you say stuff like that, people often ask, well, like, okay, so well, like, what should we do instead? And I think something like an example of something that we do versus something that we should be doing instead is that time and time again in libraries will pay a person of color, a black indigenous person to come into our libraries and like do a long, a day long kind of anti-racism training, right? And what we should be doing instead is hiring racialized librarians in continuing positions, hiring racialized librarians in positions of power. We should be paying them a good salary. We should pay for their benefits. And then we should uh, pay them uh, their pension when they retire. And I mean, this is what we're, we've been doing for white librarians forever. And that's what we should be doing now for racialized folks. And so for me, the real work in libraries is not another EDI training session or getting together and learning about racism and reading about racism and listening. The real work is to shift the dynamics in real ways that actually have material impact on people's lives. Um, Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. I About think what's that, wrong with life? That sounds like a changing <laughs> in big fundamental way. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Definitely. The other part of that question, of course, uh, is where the change comes from. Because... Oh. You yes. know, right? Like, should change come from management? Uh, I think it's actually interesting because now that you've introduced what you're studying for your PhD, I think there's an element of this in your PhD studies, which is what what kind of change is happening for people who are totally foregoing management, even their workplace, the professional association, and just creating, you know, totally autonomous affinity yes. groups or, you know, whatever. So... <laughs> the, the next question that we wrote out becomes a bit moot, but the question that we had written was, do you feel still feel the same way that the power for these changes primarily resides in management? I guess you could answer that if you don't. <laughs> or no, if, I, I, if I, I think that's a, you want to talk about it. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair question. Still, I, I, I said the thing and I should now answer about the thing. So that's totally fair. OK, so do I believe change kind of comes from management? I would say still yes and no. First, I'll say just that my own experience in management in libraries um, has very much been kind of in a middle management context. And so while there is definitely power there, um, there's also real restrictions to that power. I think some middle managers are allowed more room and more opportunities to make change at those tables. And in those cases, I think it is very useful to be at the table and for to push for those changes. And I also say no, because the kind of change that we actually need, which which is what I, we just talked about, is not currently palatable at those tables. Because it is 
asking for a fundamental redistribution of power and of resources. And I, I have learned in my experience that um, the redistribution of power and resources is not the kind of thing that's up for discussion at the moment. And of course, everyone in the labor movement and everyone in other movements that have historically struggled for agency and dignity and redistribution of power already knows that I've just kind of been a slow learner. So that's where I'm where I'm at now with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't think you're a slow learner. I think (laughs) I think it's complicated because, you know, I think everybody in whatever position has some responsibility for change. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Right. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, too. Right. Uh, Follow up to that, which we kind of touched on already, is that for some time you were in this uh, kind of middle management position. And I think you're no longer now you're a liaison librarian. Um, I don't know if it's middle management at an academic library (laughs) I don't know maybe you have student workers who work for you or something but um, what prompted the change for you yeah 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 Uh, no I'm no longer a middle manager so it I I did step down from management it was a pretty significant decision for me and I I gave it a lot of thought and it relates back to uh, what I described about kind of palatable and unpalatable change and the changes that I'm interested in in libraries are just not up for discussion right now. So I ended up having to kind of ask myself, how do I remain in the profession and still do good work that's useful, that's generative, that's even, God forbid, like fun and joyful. And right now, I just, I, I think working with directly with students and researchers and faculty does that for me. When I was thinking about this, I, I, I agree with you. You guys are familiar with Arundhati Roy's work. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of agree with everything she says, but I really agree with uh, what she says about people's relationship with power. I think there are folks who are who have a comfortable relationship with power and there are folks who have kind of a naturally adversarial relationship with power. And I don't believe I have a comfortable relationship with power. And so intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, <laughs> I needed to move on and do something else. Very fair. Thanks for sharing that. My pleasure. <laughs> Maybe we can shift a little bit to public scholarship because uh, you're fairly active on library Twitter. Uh, Do you want to talk about what role that plays in your understanding of libraries and relationships that you have? Uh, You just touched on it a little bit, but if you wanted to expand a bit on like Twitter and, you know, the networks and relationships that we have there. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good kind of segue from talking about joy. I am at um, Twitter actually brings me a lot of joy. I know that's kind of a controversial opinion, Um, but I'm super grateful for library Twitter specifically, I find um, I find it to be a really generous community. Um, folks share really freely, and I always always learn by engaging with colleagues there. I find when something happens, kind of in the library world or just in the world in general, I and when I go there to to see what people are saying, kind of without fail, someone really smart is saying something that I hadn't thought about. So it it really has been a really a positive experience for me. And also, 
not not that there isn't a vibrant community in Vancouver, but if we want to engage with folks kind of in the U.S., it's been a really positive way to be able to do that as well, or across the across Canada, because we're kind of um, over here on the West Coast. And I also follow, you know, like many other scholars and activists and feminists and now geographers um, and cooks and cat people and cocktail people. And so generally, it's just been a really um, positive experience for me personally, and I, I really like it. And so that kind of relates to public um, scholarship and knowledge mobilization, which is kind of a phrase that we're using in libraries right now. And I think if we want to think about those things, it's just kind of hard to do, I think, at this point, historically, without also talking about Twitter. Yeah. And um, I notice when I go on library Twitter that, you know, like you're referencing, right, there's a lot of academic there and I think there's also a tendency <laughs> towards academic librarians being more active on Twitter. I and see I, where this is going. Yeah, I know you see where this is going. Um, so you're an academic librarian, and and you have certain protections that not all library workers have. So I'm curious for you. I'm not saying that's like a bad thing. That's a good thing. I wish all yeah. library workers had yeah. that, right? So. Um, how does it affect how you participate in public conversations in libraries on Twitter or elsewhere to have those kind of protections and um, or to be here with you saying what I'm saying? Yeah, indeed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am super lucky and grateful to be a union member, first and foremost, with a confirmed appointment and I have academic freedom and all those things absolutely make a difference in how I choose to engage in public discourse. Uh, I think one of uh, it's one of our library colleagues uh, at Ryerson, Jane Schmidt, says academic freedom is a terrible thing to waste. And I really like that line. And I think it is a terrible thing to waste. And I think we, in fact, have a responsibility to engage. So with that freedom kind of comes that responsibility. And I think I think this is a good example of when people say something is structural, not personal. I mean, I'm a pretty outspoken person generally, but definitely this structure allows me to do that with with kind of uh, the peace of mind that I'm going to have a job the next day. And now that I've said that, I should also say that I think absolute academic freedom doesn't exist. A big example of that is the University of Illinois kind of unhiring Stephen Saleda uh, a few years ago uh, because of his outspoken criticism uh, of Zionism and the state of Israel. And that's actually a really good example of a topic that folks who engage with it uh, don't have, a, don't tend to kind of enjoy the benefits of academic freedom. And there's often backlash that they face. So for sure, being an academic librarian has made a huge difference in how I, how I engage. I think it's Sanford Berman that uses the phrase workplace speech. Berman says that uh, kind of intellectual freedom exists in libraries. Intellectual freedom exists in relation to various modes of power. And so workplace speech is a, is a limitation for library workers in public libraries. And so for me, while I absolutely love being a public librarian, I think I'm better suited to a job that gives me academic freedom. And to some extent, I think that that was something I thought about when I kind of made the switch from public to academic libraries, for sure. I want to ask a follow-up about that in relation to what you were talking about earlier, too, about 
how many racialized library workers are in more precarious positions hmm. because like I, I'm a QB member and I know QB's done Yay, some QB. research. Yay, QB. <laughs> <laughs> About uh, precarity in libraries, library mm-hmm. workers, and for sure racialized people, LGBTQ people, women are yeah. disproportionately highly <laughs> represented <laughs> in precarious work positions. And I think that ties into this too. Like, I think it's great that you're in a position where you can have that. And I wish we could have it for more people. And it's the kind of change that I'd like to see QB advocating for, but also people who are in those management positions and have some responsibility for the fact that people feel they don't have intellectual freedom, even though at the same time, (laughs) a lot of library management is going about pretty hard in the public arena for what they consider to be intellectual freedom. Yes. It's an interesting dichotomy there. I don't know if you want to talk about the scholar strike or not, but I feel like it's another example of that uh, say one thing, do another. Mm. Uh, Yeah, but... I mean... If you prefer to... Yeah, I mean, the say one thing, do another. I think... um, I can't believe I'm going to get the title of my own chapter wrong, but I... (laughs) Um, I think it was called the disparity between what we say and what we do in libraries or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely been something that is um, I've struggled with for a long, long time. And um, the, the the tweet that you're referencing um, is my own institution uh, came out pretty publicly in support of the scholars strike um, on September 9th and 10th. And at the same time that we had um, kind of at the front page of our website as announcement that SFU Library supports the scholars strike and um, the university had made an announcement. At the same time, we got an email telling us that those of us who chose to participate in the and the teachings had to take vacation time or unpaid leave for for those hours. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, and my sense is, yes, I understand it was called a strike. And so what's an employer to do, et cetera, et cetera. But so then but but I've never known of a strike where the employer like released a public statement in support of the striking employees. So it either was a strike or it wasn't. And in try to do both I just thought made no sense so I said something about it and that's where that ended up so yes and the same with public libraries and kind of intellectual freedom yes you can have intellectual freedom but the folks that work for me at the public library don't have any it it is a it's an absolute issue in libraries academic and public I'd say Uh, A really notable contribution you've made to librarianship is co-editing the book Feminists Among Us, Resistance and Advocacy in Library Leadership with Shirley Liu. Uh, Can you talk a bit more about that project? Yes, that's the project where that chapter is. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I'd love to. Yeah, so I I co-edited that with Shirley Liu. Uh, Shirley and I met when I was in library school, and she was actually responsible for me doing my uh, library practicum at the British Library. So I've loved her ever since. <laughs> and so over the years, we talked, we've talked a lot about kind of our experiences working in libraries and 
about how much we wanted our work to be kind of grounded grounded in anti-oppression work and social justice work. And those conversations often then led to talking about feminism and feminist work in kind of one way or another. So we decided to, we wanted to kind of put a call out and learn from other folks who consider themselves uh, feminist and are kind of engaging in feminist praxis um, in library world. And that's kind of how the book came to be. And Emily Drabinsky was the series editor on that as well. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun to work on that project. A dream team. (laughs) You know, the book title says library leadership. And uh, I just think it's an interesting contrast to the the conversations around management in libraries and like what the difference might be between leadership and management. And, you know, the book obviously deals with that distinction. But um, yeah, I'm curious about that, like choice. Um, I wish I had like a profound thing to say about that (laughs) other than uh, uh, I mean like a a book title choice it was a lot of what do you how how does this sound what do you think about that so that Mm -hmm. that was really the reality of it but all joking aside I think we uh, both Shirley and I and all the folks that wrote chapters definitely never confused leadership with management. Um, we, no one ever thought, okay, you have to be in management to be to be a quote-unquote library leader. So, so I hope that comes across in the book. That was our intention behind it. Yeah, that makes more sense to me. And it kind of, I think, leadership widens the opportunity for people to see themselves. Oh, absolutely. Like I think um, Allison said earlier, um, you can kind of lead from any position. And mm-hmm. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So our next few questions are kind of geared a little bit towards generational divides and bridges with the pattern of transphobic groups and speakers using libraries to advance their work. You and a number of other established librarians, including Shirley, uh, really made an effort to build relationships with and support newer librarians struggling with that situation. Can you talk about what it's like to build friendships um, and networks of support among different, you know, quote unquote, generations of librarians? Thank you for that question. That I had to really stop and think about that, mostly because I haven't really tended to think about solidarity in terms of generations. But I'm curious now. I mean, maybe I should. Mostly I've been interested in standing in solidarity with folks in our field who are interested in a kind of in an intersectional politics. I'm interested in working with people who are willing to hold our kind of historical commitment to intellectual freedom in relationship with trans liberation. And I think and I think we need we need an intersectional coalitional decolonial politics in librarianship and we kind of needed it yesterday. So that's really how I've been thinking about things. But your question is really interesting and I'm just really, I'm actually curious if if we could kind of have a conversation about kind of how you see these kind of work, this uh, our work together as as intergenerational in that way. I mean, I know it is, kind of literally but yeah 
Well, I think sometimes even just in terms of technological advances, the field changes so much. And sometimes when I've talked to my supervisors um, at work, they'll say like, oh, things have changed a lot or it didn't used to be like this. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot of that time when we, I don't know if we can, when we were sitting in that living room, <laughs> um, Allison and I, and I think Shelby was there too. And it was just, I think maybe like age-wise as well, but also I think just being students and um, or just, you know, being fresh out of school, there was a lot that we didn't know and a lot that we were learning. And it was interesting to see, I want to say like librarians that have just leveled up way more than I have. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, I, I feel so new to the profession and there's just so much that I don't know. There's, we're standing, yeah, on, there, there's so much work that others have done before to allow, you know, me and Allison to continue doing the work that we do. And there's, I'm a, I have a lot to be grateful for. So I guess when I think of generations, like I'm also just thinking of the people that I look up to. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to add, Allison? Yeah, that all resonates with me. And I think for me, this theme came to mind because, well, I feel like (laughs) with this podcast and in it through BCLA as well, I feel like um, Karen and I have spoken a lot about the conversation around intellectual freedom and trans liberation and so on. And um, Sometimes the reaction that I've received from librarians in a different generation than myself (laughs) is that there's some kind of fundamental misunderstanding (laughs) that I have about what libraries should be (laughs) because of the generation I am, which is interesting. So for me, when you and, and Shirley and some other folks kind of reached out and were intentionally, you know, we also think this is important and we should all be working together. It may not have seemed to you like there was a generational divide being bridged in such a explicit way. But to me, as a new librarian who was like, wow, I follow this person on Twitter and they're, you know, really smart and very insightful and so experienced and they would be interested to talk to me about something was uh, validating and, and I think really help me shift that perspective of, okay, even though some people are telling me that I think this way because of my generation, actually, there are a lot of people in this Mm. profession for a long time, who also are looking at this issue in terms of intersectionality, power, privilege, oppression, and that that's not a new idea that that's been around for a long time. (laughs) And you've probably been dismissing it for a really long time. So I think for me that that was helpful to learn. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, for sure. I think, like I said, I'm I'm really just mostly interested in people's politics and not as interested in how many years they've been working in libraries or how old they are or anything like that. But it is totally possible that, and it is likely the case that younger librarians are more attuned to or interested in learning about power and privilege and oppression. I just haven't been thinking about it in those terms because of course there are folks thinking like that in different age groups and with different experiences. But yeah, I, I don't I don't I, I don't mean to at all dismiss the generational kind of um lens. It, it's just um it's just that in my experience I've seen 
I've seen young turfs, I've seen old turfs, <laughs> I've seen turfs of all ages and with all kind of levels of experience. So, and I've seen people doing really good work um, kind of on the flip side of the coin as well. Which is and great I, because it, I mean, it makes me think that people are saying that to me or to us or uh, on a listserv <laughs> because <laughs> they are scared or uh, upset or whatever. And um, that that's not really what's going on. Like it's a tactic used to instill fear in younger and newer librarians pretty deliberately, it seems to me, because that's not actually the crack along which this debate is happening. Mm-hmm. It's not between generations. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally going to think about that some more. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Thank you. Because for- it comes really loaded with power when someone says oh because you're new oh my god does it right yeah because because then you go oh I don't understand I'm not a good librarian because I'm new and I don't get it what's going on here so yeah anyway well from this old librarian you, (laughs) you both get it I am a fan of your podcast and I you get it there you well, can say at line. least one old librarian. <laughs> we made it, Alison. <laughs> we made it, yeah. <laughs> so in closing, what is something you wish more folks, whether they're librarians, archivists, um, activists, or scholars, geographers, or general community members, uh, knew about, you know, feminism, leadership and management in libraries? I'll answer this last question with racialized library workers in mind, if you guys don't mind. And I'd like to say that not every opportunity in libraries is a good opportunity. Sarah Ahmed says what appears to be giving up can be a refusal to give in. And I think it's it's really worth keeping that in mind when we look around at what people choose to do with their work in libraries. And lastly, I also want to say that meritocracy is a total myth. And that's it. Those are my closing words. (laughs) Those are great. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us. If folks want to reach you online, where can they find you? Oh, sure. Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter, as we've discussed. Uh, at Baharak Y, that's B-A-H-A-R-A-K-Y. Um, uh, also my email, bucefi at sfu.ca. Happy to hear from folks. Thanks so much. We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod with a Z, not an S, uh, for American listeners. Our email is OrganizingIdeasPod at gmail.com. And our website is OrganizingIdeasPod.wordpress.com, where you can find links to things that we've talked about, like Farrakh's book and article from four years ago, (laughs) and a transcript for the episode and everything else. So thanks again so much for joining us tonight. Thank you.